Hello. Hello, I'm Georgia. And I'm John. And today we're going to talk about the mac and cheese and movies. Mmm. Comfort Films Podcast. Season 2. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 66 of the Comfort Films Podcast. This is week 2 of our love month. This week we're going to be discussing 1999's 10 Things I Hate About You. Now, 10 Things I Hate About You was released on March 31st, 1999, and it's based on William Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew. Now, 10 Things I Hate About You was written by Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith. Now, this team went on to write Legally Blonde, She's the Man, and The Ugly Truth. This was the first film for McCullough and Smith, and it was also the first feature film for TV director Gil Younger who, upon getting the job, went out to the bookstore and bought six books on how to direct a feature film. (laughs) And he actually went and read all six because he was so terrified that he would do a bad job. (laughs) It's funny. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. And he didn't. It's a great movie. It's fantastic. It's a classic. And he said there's nothing better to him than people coming up to him and saying, oh, you directed 10 Things I Hate About You? I love that movie. (laughs) It's a really, really good one. I And, you know, it means a lot to me personally because Taming the Shrew has popped up so many times mm-hmm. in my life and been important. And the year that this came out, I was, like, really in the depths of my Shakespeare studies for the first time. So it was just, like, a very good time for me to have this movie come out. Well, for me, I wasn't even really aware of this movie when it first came out. Because March 31st, 1999, I am at the tail end of my college career. Yeah, that was like your last semester, right? Yeah, and I was very, very busy. Yeah. I was in a play that was going to another place. I was actually directing a film for my honors thesis, and I was acting in another film for my DP's honors thesis, and I was trying to get everything together for grad school. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a hard time. That's me with, like, every movie that came out in the first half of 2000. But in the first half of 99, I had just gone through a semester where I took six English classes at once, which I don't recommend to anyone. (laughs) Um, As much as I love reading and writing and doing all those things and going to school, for that matter, it was kind of Herculean to be reading that much. Um, but it wasn't a bad experience because it was the first time I took uh, a Shakespeare class at the college level, which was awesome. And I loved it. And I really kind of had solidified my knowledge that Shakespeare was like the thing for me. And also because I had a really great Shakespeare teacher Um, who really was interested in performance and adaptation of Shakespeare, I was like very primed up to be interested in a movie like this that takes Taming of the Shrew and turns it into a modernized kind of story. And it's a rom-com, which I like. And this kind of particular type of teen rom-com was very popular at this time. Like the movie She's All That which has, like, you know, a bet involved right? Um, with dating a girl and all this kind of stuff. All those movies were, like, really happening at that time. And I was not a teenager anymore. This is, like, you know, I was 20, 21-ish around this time. Um, I still kind of liked those types of movies and kind of could really relate to them. 
And in particular in this, I do really relate to the cat character. <laughs> Even from the first moment, I think that we have her in that class, um, which is a great uh, uh, setting, you know, with Daryl Mitchell as the teacher with like such an attitude, you know, because I've got to put up with these annoying kids and stuff. Um, but they're talking about Ernest Hemingway and she's like, starts talking about how much she dislikes Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> and when we were watching it this time, I was like, uh Oh, Georgia has entered the chat <laughs> um, because I'm like, oops. Yeah. I could be very much like that and very like challenging. And, you know, I, I just enjoy that character in the same way that I do enjoy the character of Katarina or Kate from Taming the Shrew. Um, and, Taming the Shrew was the first Shakespeare play I ever read um, on my own. Just picked out a comedies book. I think we've talked about this before. And I was just like, oh, well, I should be reading Shakespeare because I want to be smart, you know, and I want to <laughs> know things. So I was like 15 or 14, 15, and I picked up Shakespeare's comedies. I'm like, well, I like comedies. I'm going to start there. And I read Taming of the Shrew. I loved it. I thought it was great. Many years later, when I finally got directly involved in Shakespeare performance by being a stage manager and dramaturg at Worcester Shakespeare Company, I we were doing Taming of the Shrew uh, that summer. So that's the first play I worked on as well. And I just love it. I love this play. And it's, it's not an easy play <laughs> to love sometimes um, because... You know, there is a lot of question about, is this misogynistic? Like, are we supposed to, you know, accept, like, Kate's change at the end of the play? That she means this about women being subjugated to men and all this stuff. And, you know, I have my own perspective on that, which is that, she, you know, she and Patricia have learned to play together. And they've learned to have their own life that's just theirs and it doesn't really matter what other people think or what's going on around them. That's kind of how I feel about that play. Um, but I do think there's a lot to be discussed with that. And when you take a play like a Shakespeare play, especially, and you bring it into a different era, then the great thing about Shakespeare is that he's very adaptable in that way. And not only do you then get to, discuss and philosophize over all of the different ideas that are in the play itself but in moving the play into a different location or time you raise a lot of additional questions that you can ask and and the search for meaning and truth just becomes that much richer in my opinion and I think that's certainly the case with this movie because you're taking a play that already has a lot to think about and talk about and also is very entertaining, by the way, and then bringing it into, you know, the late 90s with high schoolers and it adds a huge new dimension because you're still asking the same questions about male and female relationships and, you know, at this point you're asking questions about, you know, feminism in the late 90s which is a new time to be thinking about that and it also just has great music and clothes and all this stuff that for you and I tends to be very nostalgic well at least for me um so I just think it's great and I think that it was so smart for them to do this and I was so interested when you said 
that these writers ended up going on to do Legally Blonde, She's the Man and the Ugly Truth, because uh, Legally Blonde we've already discussed, which was a great movie, great episode for us. She's the Man is and Ugly Truth are both kind of like guilty pleasure movies for us. And She's the Man is another Shakespeare adaptation. So it's like they, and then that's of Twelfth Night, which is really my favorite Shakespeare play. And they did a really fun job on that and it has Amanda Bynes who's always entertaining so I really like the way these people think obviously and it really translates into a great movie yeah I I really like the writers as well I mean they have a real comedic sensibility that I feel that I'm in touch with and what's amazing is that they're still youthful in, in their thinking and they were able to write this high school piece that seemed completely valid to everyone involved. And the script is in no way condescending. And the director, Gil Younger, said to Disney that he wasn't going to do anything that was condescending to high schoolers. And he said that he was approaching it not as a high school movie, but as a relationship movie that just happened to take place in a high school. The character's feelings are what's first and foremost in the piece, And that's really what makes this such an enduring classic. Because in the 90s, I just remember all of these wild emotions as a teenager. And we had, you know, all of this great music, this emotive music. Everyone would argue over the title. Is it alternative? Is it indie? (laughs) Is it grunge? Whatever it is. You know, and so we've got, you know, all of this, you know, kind of like boiling kettle happening and then we actually have this set you know in washington in seattle yeah you know a lot of it was shot in tacoma but it was it was that that seattle music scene which was really the epicenter for everything at that point so i I think it was perfect and we also had a lot of female forward bands you know we have in this letters to cleo now this is a boston-based band right that shows up here and then we also have save ferris they're from orange county Mm -hmm. again you know we've got a female lead singer so it's nice to see a film that was so forward with females at the time. And also, I feel that the script actually improves upon Taming of the Shrew because Cat doesn't really change. What we see is Patrick Verona, Heath Ledger's character change, right? He stops smoking. He starts caring. He's interested. He supports her. You know, I, I feel that this is just such a wonderful take because when I was in Taming of the Shrew, I had the the same feeling. Now I was Grumio, I was Petruchio's servant. So it's a different experience than, than being Petruchio. Um, But it, it just, it did have this feeling, this hard edge to it in the Shakespeare play that I wasn't necessarily a fan of. It's like, you're going to train this woman. (laughs) And then it's like talking about falconry and I, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I've seen the play, you know, uh, actually for, with RSC. I, I saw it and it was, it was a fantastic production. But still, I had the question of how the hell is this still relevant? Because I don't know anyone that was like, you know, yeah, she looks like a good prospect, but I got a tamer. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck are you mean, man? Well, I have known people like that. But oh, I'd run from them. I mean, the problem is that it's not... 
I guess there's a lot of arguments that you can make here, but I personally feel that Petruchio is more of a bullshit artist than anything else. <laughs> I like that. Um, I don't, you know, he's like, I'm going to do this. And then he, you know, proceeds to basically psychologically terrorize Kate. But I really don't feel that she ju- she does change that much over the course of The Taming of the Shrew. And no more than I feel that Kat changes in 10 Things I Hate About You. I do think that she changes a little bit. But her change is to be more comfortable with being herself rather than having to feel like she's always in a fight with people. Mm. Um, She does gain vulnerability. She does become more okay with being herself. Like, at the beginning, I think we have a person who's very angry and is very much like, I'm going to force everyone to accept me the way that I am. And over the course of the movie, it becomes more about having somebody that does accept her as she is and becoming less combative about that. The cat at the beginning of this movie would never have had the conversation with Bianca about her past experiences with Joey. You know, she didn't have this conversation. I feel like at the beginning, she could have possibly helped, you know, head off anything with Bianca and Joey had she said, hey, look, this is what happened. But she isn't capable of doing that. Over the course of the movie, she softens and becomes a bit of a different person, at least to other people's perceptions. And I think that's what happens in Taming of the Shrew also. Yes, Kate is psychologically tormented by Petruchio in Taming of the Shrew. He tells her, this is how it is. And she says, okay. Then he changes his mind and says, this is how it is. So she has to like adjust her thinking. For me, it becomes more of a game that they're playing together than a game that he is playing to beat her. That is my definite personal take on the play. And not everybody has to agree with it. And I feel like it can go either way. You could certainly play it. The Petruchio is almost like a villain. And he's bent on hurting and subjugating this person. For me, it plays better as a comedy if I see it as they are learning to play a game together over the course of it. And Petruchio has to change also. And he does. You know, he doesn't change always super successfully, but I do feel like there is a difference. And by the end of that, they're kind of playing a game where they're on the same team against everybody else. Who's all, all those other people are jerks. Everybody was treating Kate like a piece of shit the whole time. And they still want to, they still want to treat her badly at the entertainment of the shrew. And At the end, though, the two of them are playing this game together where they kind of get it turned around on everybody. And, you know, I guess that's kind of what we have here, too. By the end of this, the two of them, even even though they have gone back and forth and they've experienced some really hard things together, Patrick and Kat are on the same team at the end of this movie. And even if people still want to look at Kat and think that she's, you know this combat of angry feminist girl. It's not exactly the case anymore. And she doesn't care as much anymore because she has changed to where she accepts who she is as much as 
Patrick does. You know, he even supports her interests in music and uses the money that he got of this bet to buy her a guitar. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he actually goes ahead and he takes, you know, it feels like all the money that he got from Joey, you know, to go ahead and get her the guitar. I mean, it, it's pretty good. I mean, it makes you feel better about the whole thing. I mean, when I was watching the movie, I had this this stupid thought in my head that was funny, which was, I'm like, what if somebody paid you to go out with Georgia? And I'm like, that'd be fucking awesome. You know what I mean? I would tell you, we would just act like, you know, you know, it was a real like challenge, but we'd just like keep the money and do cool shit. Like I would keep this going, you know, on and on. I mean, Forever. exactly. I mean, Christ, I would still do it, you know, while we're married. Oh, I got to go out with her again. I, I think it's going to be two bills for tonight. <laughs> You know, like that's I mean, and that's one of the things that I really, really love about <laughs> Patrick Verona is his math. Um, that, I think, is my favorite part of the film is when Joey is trying to talk to Patrick about going out. And he's going to give him 20 bucks or something. Yeah, he's like, I'll give you 20. I'll give you 30. You know, and he's like, oh, you know, we're going to go to the movies. That's 15. You know, and uh, there's going to be popcorn. That brings it to 53. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she's definitely going to want raisinets, right? <laughs> you know? So it's like he's like 75. You know, it's that that's, that's the way that he does it. And he does it in such a wonderful way in the film. In the end, they do settle on 50. But I really enjoy the fact that there is a game here, you know? And it gets to be comical, you know, for Patrick, because then he also has, you know, Michael and Cameron talking to him about going out with Cat as well. And he's like, oh, my God. You know, it, it's just like, I don't know. It, it's it's very fun to me, again, to think about being about being on the other side of it, where you enjoy going out with a person and you just could keep someone else's money who's kind of a prick. You know, yeah. I mean, that's a win win for me. Uh yeah, I, I mean, but again, I mean, when I look at it and I like step away from it, I'm like, okay, this is a relationship that's just happening. And you're dealing with Kat, who has been royally screwed over by this guy, Joey. And that seemed to be her last relationship. And then Patrick shows up and he seems to have a genuine interest in her and who she is and keeps saying, oh, no, no, there's nothing going on. And then she finds out, you know, at the prom, right, which is like the height of high school. It's it's, you know, the pretty much the last big stop before graduation. This is all a lie. And you were just paid to go out with me. You know, it's like, oof, what are you, a gigolo? You know, it's it's not it's not very pleasant. So I, I, I take myself back to that thought and I'm like, okay, yeah. I get well, it. it certainly is hurtful and it's coming from Joey who's already hurt her before. Mm -hmm. You know, so that makes it really garbage. And also I think that it makes her feel crappy because nobody she feels like nobody likes her and you have like all these guys are like falling over themselves to go out with her younger sister. Yeah. And she is just like a piece of garbage or something. And it feels really bad. I mean, I've been in that situation. I get it. Like, I was like the older sister, the responsible one, and the one who, you know, was always trying to do good in school and always seemed like 10 years older than everybody else that I was in school with. So it's not like people were like dropping dead to go out on dates with me. Meanwhile, my sisters were more, you know, fun, extroverted type people. And so they were always like a bit more popular in that way. 
So I've been in that situation. It is not a good feeling situation. Well, those people are very short-sighted because you, my friend, are the genuine article. That's the thing to go for. Well, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Absolutely. But... <laughs> Absolutely. But you have to be a certain type of person to take on that kind of a challenge. And I think that it is kind of a challenge to want to date somebody who, you know, is really smart and is really opinionated. You know, Kat has a lot of opinions and she's not afraid to share them. And having been that person many times, I know that that isn't like how to win friends and influence people. It doesn't really pay off so good, but it is who you are. If it's who you are, it's who you are, you know? Yeah. And that is like who I am and who I've always been. And I value people like that. And you do too. Um, You don't. Like, you don't tend to value people who just kind of want to go along with the crowd and, and and not, you know, think. But that's a rarity, you know? I think that you're, you are more like Patrick in that way and that you, you know, and I'm a lot like Patrick too and that I don't really care what people think of me. And I think that his whole thing is he could relate to Kat because... He's kind of ostracized from school, too. Like, everybody thinks that he is this crazy person who's done all this awful, crazy stuff. And so he just kind of leans into that. And it's like, okay, well, if people are going to act like that toward me, then I'm just going to really make them feel it, you know? <laughs> and I, I love that about his personality, <laughs> that he doesn't care. And I tend to be, you know, kind of, unfortunately, like, <laughs> like that, too. Where I'm just like, okay, well, take your opinion and just, you know, really lean into that and love it because it really doesn't affect me one way or the other. And I think that in high school, being able to have that feeling or that belief in yourself is difficult. And Kat kind of wants that but doesn't have it. And by the end of the movie, I feel like she gets there to where she can be comfortable with herself. And he is, you know, that's the thing with Patrick. He is comfortable with himself pretty much from the beginning. It's like, oh, you think I'm a psycho? Well, I'm going to drill a hole in your French book, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Well, and I mean, again, this is <laughs> something that really makes me chuckle. I mean, this is kind of like that origin story of the Joker that we were looking for. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, how did I get these scars? Where did I get these scars? You know, and it's just like, <laughs> let's make up a new story because that's that's what he's doing here. He's playing that part. And then if you want to compound it and make it really good, Robin is going to the Joker for help. You know, <laughs> it's like, could you help me, Joker? You know, it's it's very funny when you think about that because, you know, of course... You know, well, Robin and, I, and the Joker later. I always thought that it was kind of weird. Well, and this is maybe just my perception, but I feel like Heath Ledger and Joseph Gordon-Levitt kind of have a similar look to them. Hmm. And so I would have seen them playing like brothers or something. I would have believed that. And so the fact that they just kind of keep coming around in the same things yeah. is really funny. You know, that they were in 10 Things I Hate About You and then they were in both in the Nolan Batman movies. Yeah, it's it's funny how you see these folks. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was actually just coming off Third Rock from the Sun. And so that was, you know, kind of their that was their first like big get for this. That was the first person that signed on. Mm. And there was a very funny story where, you know, the writers 
met with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he wanted to kind of get a handle on this character. He kind of wanted to know <laughs> what, what it was about. And Smith just jumped in there and said, you know, it's uh, the characters like Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. <laughs> and McCullough was like, what the fuck? And so it was just like this really good moment. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt was like, okay. And, you know, he signed on at that point. So, yeah, again, it's, it's very funny. I, I love hearing these stories about these writers. I mean, they actually were having coffee with Heath Ledger because they wanted to know, since he had an Australian accent, do they need to rewrite any of the dialogue? And they enjoyed his company so much, they spent like the whole day with him. They're like, oh, tell us another story, you know? It's great because these women are just kids at heart and it doesn't go away. And, you know, they work together, too. They do their writing together. They used to actually do their writing separately, but they didn't feel like it was teamwork. And so now when they write, you know, they just they get together and they work on it. And it's just it's so good. It's just like buddies. It's like buddies <laughs> writing. And everything in this has that real fun, just immediate flavor to it. You know, there there's. I think that's why this film has so much heart is because it's very well written and, you know, they were able to speak to, you know, kids in high school when, you know, they were in their thirties. Yeah. And I, I think that just, I think that that writing style also does serve to make it good dialogue mm -hmm. because you're actively, you know, talking through it while you're doing it. So there's no stiltedness. You know, and that that could have easily happened. There are a couple of points where there's something that sounds a little bit stilted because it is straight out of Taming of the Shrew. And I get kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, well, whatever. But overall, I don't really feel like that's an issue. And I do feel like there is um, just a real ease and realism to the conversations that these people are having with each other from a 90s perspective. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are words that are just absolutely gone now from the vernacular, like the word upchuck to mean throw up. I mean, that's gone. When was the yeah. last time you heard somebody say upchuck? I don't know. Nobody says that at this point. But, you know, and I, I think that Cat <laughs> tends to like speechify a lot, but I do that in real life as well. So I get it. Like, I mean, it, it's not like everyone talks like this all the time. But it's very distinctively character-oriented the way that each of the people talks. Um, you know, Larry Miller is another good example. Oh, yeah. As, you know, Bianca and Kat's father, he goes off on these really long, like, blustering kind of speeches that are hilarious. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a stand-up comedy guy. Super funny. And... Uh, he, he just is like so concerned about his daughters getting pregnant because he's a gynecologist. And I thought that was such a smart thing to introduce, you know, because the father in The Taming of the Shrew is, you know, he isn't super well-rounded. We don't have a huge idea of what this character is about, you know, just that he's a single father of two daughters and he's kind of out of his element sometimes. And, you know, they take that with Larry Miller and they run with it and it's just a lot of fun. And I feel like that character is one of my favorite characters in the movie, especially now that I'm older. 
because I can understand it more, I can relate to it more. And also, it's really cool to see, you know, this kind of close father-daughter relationship in a movie. Because I don't feel, I mean, I, I could be wrong and I could just be limiting my thought, but I don't really think about that as many times as I think about seeing a good mother-daughter relationship or a good sister relationship or whatever. But in Pride and Prejudice, which we just talked about, there's a very big closeness between Lizzie and Mr. Bennett. And in this, we kind of have, you know, a different relationship between Kat and her father where he almost treats her as an equal. They have this conversation that I, I actually had with my own dad. Um, where he just is like, you know, at least Bianca, I don't remember exactly what he says in the movie, but he says, you know, the Bianca lets him be a part of her life and that with Kat, he feels like he's just a spectator, you know, that she hasn't needed him. And it's, it's something, again, that I super relate to where, you know, you have this dad who kind of wanted to be a part of the person, of his daughter's life, but he kind of almost doesn't understand how to be. Because she's so independent and she's, you know, so fierce about who she is. And I, I love that. I think it's just really well done and it is touching at the same time. Because, we, again, we have a father who has gone through some shit, you know, because their mom is gone and he's, you know, trying to do this by himself. And, you know, very clearly is not great at it. You know, I mean, he, he is great at it, but he thinks he's not great at it. And his whole deal, you know, he's just so focused on protecting them sometimes that he doesn't understand how to scale it back and, you know, treat them as adults a little bit. Um, and so it just comes out as like this overprotectiveness, if I'm making sense at all. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, it actually brings up a point that I think you'll find interesting. So originally, 10 Things I Hate About You was supposed to be shot in Los Angeles. But the director, Gil Younger, said, uh, you know, I'm really concerned about this being compared to Clueless because Clueless was such a good film. And that's what made him think, hey, you know, Let's maybe just do some exteriors in Washington, Seattle, you know, up that way. And Disney said, OK, you know, to go and do that. And when they went up, well, he went up on a scouting trip to Washington and in Tacoma, he found Stadium High School. This incredible, incredible <laughs> high school. It looks like a castle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was built in the 1890s and it was supposed to be this great hotel that looked like a French chateau. And then things happened, and they couldn't really finish construction. And so it was mostly used for storage. And then there was a fire, okay? And so then the early 1900s, the Tacoma school system actually purchased the building. Um, and that was in 1904 they purchased it. And then in 1906, it opened um, as a high school. And then the stadium, this is insane, Okay, the, the stadium that we see was originally a, a lot grander. Now, the construction on the stadium was completed in 1910, and it could seat 32,000 people. Yes, Teddy Roosevelt spoke there. You know, just 
insane. So it was it was just this magical place. Okay, um, it, what they said now, which is so funny, is as grand as the the high school looks from the exterior. When you go inside, it just looks like a regular <laughs> high school. But I mean, it's perfect. It's perfect to turn that into Padua High School because it, it just, I mean, the you know, the turrets, the whole nine yards, you know, it just looks like a fairy tale and it's the perfect backdrop. It was very funny because the actors, David Crumholtz, who I adore in this. He's, he's probably the best person in the movie. <laughs> oh my God. I have so much praise to shower on that guy. And it's just like, he said, you know, if my high school looked like this, I would have wanted to go. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> All of them were just so in awe of this place. Like, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And they didn't find out that they were actually going to be shooting in Washington until the table read. And at the table read, they're like, okay, uh, you know, your summer, uh, you aren't going to be able to spend it here with your friends. We're going up to Washington. And (laughs) so at first, some of them were like, I don't know. And then they got up there and they, they loved it. And, uh, well, this is the other thing I want to say. I feel like I'm on a 30-minute talk here. But the cast, they enjoyed each other's company so much. And, you know, the, the director was having a good time. Everyone was having fun. That the cast actually felt like, you know, it was summer camp. You know, it was just like this really great time. And the director said, you know, this is like the best time that he's ever had directing something. And this was the first feature film he directed. I believe this is the first American film of Heath Ledger, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was just like you had all of these people so young, fresh out of the gate, all of this talent, all this creativity. And it, it just it really comes through in the finished product. I mean, even in the bloopers. That you see at the yeah. end of the film. You can just see they're having a great time. Well, yeah. and I think that, you know, that's really fortunate that, you know, they were just trying to avoid comparison with Clueless. And it took them to this location shoot because it did create that summer camp atmosphere. And you're right. Clueless, first of all, is a literature adaptation. Uh, and also... It's another one where the daughter and father relationship is kind of central to the story. So I can see that there could have been an opening for comparison. They're also very 90s type movies. But at the same time, I think that it's a lot different because I think that the relationship, um, the the girlfriend-boyfriend type relationship in Clueless is very secondary to the friendship aspects of that movie. Whereas in this, it is a lot more about, like, this rom-com applied to, like, teens. This, I I feel like, yes. I feel like this, this is funny. I feel that this film is a lot more like high school. And I feel like Clueless, to me, feels like, in a good way, okay? Like, the film of, like... I don't know, 20 somethings. Do, mm. do you know what I mean? But it, it happens to be in high school. There, there's a level of maturity that I feel in Clueless. And that probably comes from, you know, Alicia Silverstone's character and just this feeling of having everything under control and she has everything organized. And, yeah. you know, everyone, you know, has these relationships. I mean, people are, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend. It seems like they're married already. Yeah. Well, Cher is not angsty. Like, no. At all. 
Whereas all the people in this are at least a little angsty. Oh, yeah. I mean, even Patrick, who is like too cool for school, you know, he's got a little bit of underlying angst, even though it doesn't come out. Kat is like super angsty. Bianca is angsty because she wants to go out on dates and be normal. And she can't because her dad is kind of a nut. And her sister is, you know, a a leper, (laughs) social (laughs) leper, whatever. You know, and then you have Cameron, who's super angsty because he wants to go out with Bianca. And, you know, I guess the only one who maybe isn't super angsty is Michael, which is David Crumholtz. But he's like, (laughs) Hmm. I don't know. He's he's outside the circle in a way anyway, um, because he is kind of like our clown character. And in Shakespeare, the clown character is part of the action, but also kind of free to walk about the outside edge and comment on the action. And Michael is very aware of what's happening. You know, he's very um, removed and aware of what other people are doing. So at the same time, while he's involved... You know, he wants to be popular. He wants all the same things that everybody else wants. <laughs> and he gets the dick drawn in his face. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about that, you know, because he's trying to fit in and trying to be cool. But at the same time, he's so aware that he's never going to be cool enough that he kind of just ends up being like, eh, I'll help other people. You know what I mean? And then, of course, he does get a nice ending where he gets together with the girl Mandela and they end up, you know, having a nice relationship, it seems. Um, Even though I'm not sure what her deal is because she's a little nutty, but he's also a little nutty. So maybe it's match made in heaven. But he's, he's so fun. And like, has there ever been a time when David Crumholtz wasn't great in no, something? he's perfect. He, he's perfect yeah. in everything. I love him in this. He was in Slums of Beverly Hills around the same time amazing so good i just think he's he's a really good actor because even though he was young he kind of feels like he's like 45 years old or or older maybe even and he just seems like a like an old man like an old florida comedian or something (laughs) in like a young man's body and it's great like he's he's funny and He's kind of like a nerd and a preppy kind of dressing kind of nerd guy. He kind of like, no offense intended, reminds me of you. When I watch this, I'm like, this is kind of like the John of the movie. Oh, I fully agree with you. <laughs> I mean, it's the the David Crumholtz character in this. I Oh, man. Yeah, I, I'm excited to talk about this because, yes, I, I fully agree with you. But one thing I do want to bring up about the character of Mandela, who he ends up with, her story was actually um, pretty dark, and they changed it. And I believe there was a suicide attempt. Yes. Yeah, that would have been way too much. Right? She really wanted to be with William Shakespeare. And, you know, it's... (laughs) This is what's making me laugh in that, is because David Crumholtz said there's so many characters in this that they have names that refer back to the Shakespeare play, but not me. But, you know... I get to actually be William Shakespeare himself, you know, at the end at the prom, because he dresses up as William Shakespeare to be with Mandela. Uh, yeah, David Crumholtz, yes, yes, thousand percent me. 
Um, he does just have this older feeling to him. You know, I was in high school, and if you look at the clothes that I'm wearing, you know, you feel like it's like senior day at the golf course. That's totally what I thought about, because every picture of you from, like, the mid to late 90s, I mean, even probably early 90s, I guess, like, your high school years, like, later high school years, you're, like, always dressed in, like you know, khakis, a button down. Right. Like, you're never not in a button down. And maybe a sweater vest, you know? Like, you always had, like, a really preppy look to you. And that's, I think, what you kind of prefer to wear clothes-wise. You always want to be, like, put together and, you know, have everything ironed. And, you know, whereas I am definitely, you know, more of, like, a casual clothes kind of person and always have been, like... I spent an entire year wearing nothing but band t-shirts to school. I would wake up and be like putting on black leggings and black boots and then like, which band t-shirt am I going to wear today? And that's like the only decision that I had to make. Meanwhile, you have like perfectly pressed khakis, a button down, (laughs) you know, a sweater vest, a tie, like, and you went to like a Catholic school. So I guess you had to kind of dress up for that. Yeah, I mean, that was my uniform, and yeah. that that was something that I always, you know, kind of took for granted. I mean, I, I was very lucky, you know. I mean, I always had things ironed and pressed, and my mother did the laundry. You know, I, I was definitely spoiled, you know, with that. But like you, I actually preferred to be in T-shirts and jeans. But the problem is, is when you put me in T-shirts and jeans, it doesn't fit, you know. I, I don't think I'm James Bond in any way, shape, or form, but I am going to bring up Timothy Dalton in License to Kill. And there's this one shot where he has jeans on. <laughs> I mean, Christ, I don't even want to call him jeans. I want to call him dungarees, you know, and it just doesn't look right. You're like, wait, that's James Bond. What's he doing? And it just doesn't, you know, I again, I am ready for senior day. You know, that's me. And he has, you know, this mentality of he's going to take care of everything and he wants to always be, you know, talking with people. And, you know, he's very grounded, which is funny. You know, he does have his angst, but, you know, he does definitely have that older appearance, the way he's doing his hair in the mirror before he gets ready to go to the party, you know, and he's also goofy in the same way that I am, you know, so he rides a motorbike, which is very funny, Yeah, you know, and it's just like like a moped. Oh God. Yeah. Well, it's just like, he's, (laughs) he's talking to, um, to his buddy there, Cameron. And he's like, you know, stay cool, bro. And he's got on like a jean jacket and he goes away, you know, on his motorbike and he almost like goes head on into a pickup truck and like turns hard to the right and like just shoots over the edge of this hill. You know what I mean? That's scary. Oh, it's scary. And like, you know, he kind of wipes out, but he's okay. And he puts his hands up. You know, it isn't like some terrible crash. Like he's, he's good. I mean, I don't even know that he falls over, but it's just like, it's enough that you're like, oh boy, is he okay? And that is the same, you know, kind of stupid ass thing that I would do. Like, I would think I'd be killing it. You know, like, stay cool, bro. And then, like, I don't know, I would find a way to, like, step on my own toe and fall down five flights of stairs. You know, that's that's kind of, like, my whole deal. And, like, when he's at Bogie Lowenstein's party and he's doing the Lord of the Dance... <laughs> Yeah, you know, what are I'm, you talking about? I mean, that I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh I'm like, 
that? He's speaking my language. Like, I am that type of goofball. And, like, you know, it's like Steve Buscemi's, like, hello, fellow kids, you (laughs) know? I felt like that in high school when I was a kid, you know? And, again, the motorbike with him, just complete cognitive dissonance. They're out front of the bar, and there are two older bikers on either side of him. He's trying to be cool and act like he's in the club with them. They are not having no, it. No, not at all. No, it's just, it's so funny that he's in high school at all because yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't belong there, but no. he is a fantastic actor, hilarious, you know, his comedic timing, you know, paired with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the two of them, you know, were good friends and it really shows in the film. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, he's this type of guy who would kind of take on the new student and try to be friends with them and you know, show people around. Oh, yeah, like, show them the ropes. Yeah, yeah like, he's going to tell you really how it is. And, <laughs> you know, it's like he has, like, the... He has, like, this issue with Bogey Lowenstein and that crew. Right. You know, and he's, like, got beef with them, but it's going to be fine, and he's going to make it work. And I just... I really like this character so much because... You know, it it feels like he has a lot going on that you're not party to. Like, when he's not on screen, you know he's busy doing some other weird shit. Oh, for sure. Because this is a guy who really has a lot of irons in the fire. And I just think that's great. So I'm super glad that they decided not to go dark with Mandela, because I think that would have been kind of out of place. And the fact that, you know... Michael gets to get a girl in the end, too, when he's been working so hard to help other people. Yes. And have their relationships work out, and then he gets a relationship, too. It's fair, you know. Well, my favorite line of his is at the prom, when it's revealed, you know, that Patrick has been taking money to go out with Kat, and he's dancing with Mandela, and they kind of move over, and they go, the shit hath hitteth the fan. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, crumb He's like, oh, the shit hath hitteth it's so good uh so good yeah he's great every time he's on screen he steals the show he's so good um and you know it is impressive how great all the people are in this and how you know they managed to put together this cast that goes on to do huge stuff yes you know yes Yes. i mean heath ledger every time i see a movie with him i am bombed i'm happy that we got heath ledger and bombed that we lost heath ledger because the guy is so good. Like, even if you don't like a movie that he's in, he is so good in it. And he's very distinctive. I mean, we get that with all of the people in this in this uh, movie. And part of it is how it's written that we've talked about. They're very good at making each character very distinct. And it's distinct on the page. And then it becomes even more distinct with what the people the actors do with it Mm -hmm. and that's why i think this is so successful you know and i do think that it's great that younger didn't condescend i think that like having that attitude of it's you know we don't have to point out that these are teenagers you let the script speak for itself you let the actors speak for themselves and you treat it just like you would any other film about adults because it's the same stuff, you know, just because they're younger doesn't mean that they aren't people, <laughs> you know, and I think that having that respect that teenagers are people too kind of makes this a, a really successful 
film, not just a successful teen film. Well, we also have, you know, again, just the brilliance of Gil Younger because he worked with Krumholtz on a television show called Chicago Sons, and he remembered him. So when he read the script for 10 Things I Hate About You, immediately he knew that Krumholtz had to be Michael. He didn't read him. You know, he just called him and said, this is it. And he just knew. And he it knew. is. I mean, that is David Krumholtz. Like, the character is perfect for him. And it's kind of like, a lot of these characters have direct antecedents in Taming of the Shrew. I feel that this character, Michael, doesn't have a direct antecedent. It's part Tranio, which is Cameron, the Cameron character, Lucentio. His uh, a, his servant, who kind of takes on his role while Lucentio pretends to be a tutor for Bianca. Um, and Tranio is just running around pretending to be, like, his master. Um, and it's, so he's funny and he's really great. Um, and it can be a great role for a really funny person. When we did it, it was... Um, but he's also a little bit Grumio, so the character that you played in Taming of the Shrew. Um, he's both of those put together. And that those both are like servant roles, um, but they are also very distinctive personalities in the play. And <laughs> Grumio is kind of just like this agent of chaos a lot of the time, running around like... And, and we played that up when we did the show by you having to change costumes every time you were in a scene. Even if it was just like two minutes, you had to change from one entire outfit to another. And just kind of acting like you're nuts. I mean, like, and it was really funny. And so I think that Michael has a little bit of that to him. And he also has a little bit of the Tranio character to him. Um, but he also feels super modern and like a very specific type of high school student. So it's, it's Taming of the Shrew and 90s teen movie smashed into one really successful thing again. Yeah, it's, it's just perfect, perfect fusion. And, you know, I also, <laughs> you talk about the, the changes, the costume changes that I had in the production of Taming of the Shrew. I would have been lucky if I had two minutes. I, yeah. I actually had one change that I think was one minute, and it was in the park. And so I had to run down this hill and then take all of my stuff off. I had to change into this, like, tight-fitting Superman suit and run back, you know, and act like, you know, absolutely nothing happened and, and oh my god it was crazy like i remember one night i was going down the hill and i like rolled my ankle oh god don't even talk about it. it's awful well i had to shut it off because i'm like oh my god i have to run back out there and I'm, I'm running the whole show to change i mean i had some funny outfits i was yeah. a donut at one point remember that was just a big donut were you I don't literally the donut. yeah at the end i come out and i'm a big donut like it was just you know every time they had you know something different for me you know, at the beginning, it was like I was dressed like a typical Boston Red Sox fan. Yeah. And then I kind of like took on, you know, those qualities, which was fun. It was a great show. It was a great show. But it yeah, it's very creative and fun. And like mm -hmm. a lot of, again, a lot of young people, a summer camp, kind of an atmosphere. Yes. We made yes. a lot of friends out of that experience that we still have. Yeah. 
um, as you guys know, because many of them have been guests on our show. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, that that lends something to a production when people get along, and you definitely can see that these people got along. Like, they have chemistry. Like, you know, we haven't even really talked about Julia Stiles that much yet, um, but Julia Stiles is so great in this part. After Julia Stiles is in this, she kind of becomes, like, the go-to actress for, like, Shakespeare adaptations, because she was in O, um, and then she was also in the Ethan Hawke Hamlet as Ophelia. So, you know, she is kind of perfect for this stuff, because she seems very smart, um, and she's also just a great actor. Um, the scene where she does the poem, the sonnet, she, like, is really emotional in that scene and, like, kind of breaks down, and that was a one-take thing. Like, it wasn't planned for her to be crying like that. It wasn't planned that she would be so affected there, but she was, and it feels so real that it's, like, kind of just, like, heartbreaking. And that's what I was talking about with Kat being vulnerable. Like, she's had this hard shell on her, you know, ever since this thing happened with Joey, you know? She has toughened herself up and not shown emotion. And this situation with Patrick, where she actually does open up and kind of let somebody know her and see her, and then she has to turn around and feel betrayed by that person... It is really heartbreaking, and Julia Stiles does that so damn well that it just kind of brings this movie to a different level. Yeah, I mean, she's absolutely incredible. What they said was that she made the entire crew cry. The director said he was like, he was crying, and he was like holding his nose and his mouth, you know what I mean? Because he didn't want to make any noise, because it was just so incredible. The writers, you know, when they were writing it, didn't see it this way. But when they saw what she did, they were just like, wow. It, it was just the biggest wow moment that there was. And when she actually got the role, this is pretty great. So they auditioned a ton of people for Cat. And <laughs> Gil Younger gets this call. And, you know, it's like from the casting person. They're like, hey, you know, take a look at Julia Stiles. You know, she was in this indie movie. You know, we think this could be a good fit. He's like, okay, great. You know, she was in New York. He was in New York. They have the meeting. And he said from the second that he saw her, her confidence when they first met, <laughs> his words were, if this person can actually read the lines, <laughs> the part, you know, is hers because she was just so good. And she just had that movie star presence. And she did. And, you know, absolute knockout, um, you know, and again, I mean, this this was a big thing back in the day at the 2000 MTV Music and TV Awards. Julia Stiles won for breakthrough female performance. And it was it was incredible. You know, it was incredible. And like you said, it, she became the person that you could count on for these really layered emotional roles. Yeah. While she was still so young, she was able to tap into so much. Yeah, she's so good in this. I would venture to say that, you know, as much as everyone in this is great, if it wasn't for them having her... And, Pat, and Heath Ledger, I don't know that this movie could have succeeded in the way that it does. Because 
she's just perfect at every turn. Like, she can be funny in the part where, you know, she's hit her head and, like, Patrick has taken her and they're on the swings and she's just, like, passes out, like, instantly. It's it's hilarious. Um, but she's also really serious and you can feel the seriousness from her and... And it, it, it's in a way that I admire. Like, I like people like this who are like, you know, I'm going to be who I am. You can't stop me. Like, this is, this is me. And she's, you know, almost challenging everyone, like, to tell her that they don't like the way that she is. And she doesn't care. You know, she's going to fight about it. And I love that. She's super scrappy. She's a great character. And Julia Stiles is perfect. I mean, I, I read, I think, and again, this is IMDb trivia, which anyone can edit, so I haven't vetted this information, but um, <laughs> I believe that actually she was initially going out for the Bianca role, and Larissa Olenek, who is Bianca, was going out for the cat role, but they gave them the opposite. Um, and, and their age is not that different. Like, they're very close in age. So, it's funny, but Julia Stiles definitely has this older sister energy as compared to Larissa Olenek, who I think really feels like that perfect teenage person who, you know, wants to have fun, wants to, like, live their life. And she's also really strong, but in a different way right? Because she does want to be accepted. She does want to be popular. She is flattered by the attention of this popular guy. But pretty early on, she feel, she figures out this guy's a total douche and just gets really bored with him. And she doesn't really suffer fools, you know? And the funny thing about it is that I think one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Kat and Bianca finally talk to each other. Kat is like, look, this is why I didn't want you to go out with Joey because this happened to me. And Bianca is shocked, but she's also pissed because she's like, you could have told me this information and allowed me to make my own decision. You could have treated me like I am, you know, a grown woman also. And that's where Kat has failed as a person because she has treated her sister like, you know, you don't know any better. I have to take care of you. And been kind of condescending and infantilizing to her when we actually realize at this point that Bianca can really take care of herself pretty damn well, you know? And I think that that's a really important moment in the movie for the sisters to, to, to reconnect and really understand each other. And it is a turning point for them, right? Because, you know, this is when Kat kind of just does let uh, Bianca go on and have her life. And, you know, they're on the same team now. And now their dad is in trouble because (laughs) they're working together, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it kind of rolls downhill because you have their father, right? And he, you know, wants to put his power, guidance, whatever you want to call it, over Kat, because he doesn't want her to go away for college, right? And then Kat, in turn, you know, will go to her younger sister and have that control as well. And we actually see that the father and Kat will work together yeah. sometimes to, to make sure that Bianca is safe. 
So, I mean, we really do get, you know, a very interesting development because, I mean, Kat, as you said, doesn't suffer fools. You know, when she backs into Joey's car. Great scene. Right. He's just being such a dick. You know what I mean? And it's just like, you know, a person that just parks directly behind you when you're trying to back out is the absolute worst. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, what are you going to do now? And you can see the look on her face and she just guns it and rams into this Chevy Camaro Z28. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it's awesome. And, you know, and, and she just goes, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. It's so good. Well, and I mean, it's we... like a wish fulfillment because you would never do that in real life. Well, I wouldn't, you know, because I wouldn't want to be on the hook for the car insurance. Like I'm, I'm you know, more of the daughter Larry Miller's looking for here <laughs> because he's so pissed about, he's like, whoops, what do you mean? Whoops. You know, but it is wish fulfillment just to just screw over this guy. And I think that that's one of the things I love about this is that Joey is the worst. Oh yeah. And the script is constantly kind of shitting on him and it becomes kind of hilarious because He's still this cool guy, you know, he's still like this super cool popular guy, but he sucks and everybody knows he sucks and like they keep sticking it to him and I love it. Well, when he shows the two headshots that look, you know, <laughs> identical, except one is in a black t-shirt and one is in a white t-shirt, the writers were like, we need to keep this. Oh, yeah. And when the production wrapped, you know, they took it. And I also love at the prom. Again, I like how we change it up. You know, Joey punches out Cameron, okay? And Bianca comes and just destroys Joey. Yeah. yeah, what I mean? She punches him. I believe she punches him again, then she knees him in the nuts. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so good. Well, it's so good and satisfying. And it shows you that there is this similarity between the two sisters that I, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like that that heart to heart between Kat and Bianca, you know, awoke that in her. Yeah, it did. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that's the whole thing. We see that Bianca is not. This is the thing with the Taming the Shrew as well. OK, Bianca is not perfect. Like everybody keeps telling you that she is such a she's so beautiful and she's so mild and well behaved and. Her sister is such a bitchy shrew, you know? Yeah. But what's the truth is that Bianca just knows how to play the game better. Like, in, in Taming the Shrew, she is doing everything that she wants to get what she wants. But she's just not overt about it. Whereas Kate makes her feelings known, Bianca just kind of works within the system. And I think that's what we see, you know, translated over to this, too. Like, Bianca still wants to be popular and be, like, a normal teenager. She doesn't want to give anything up to get that. But she, you know, can work within the system to get there. And as soon as she gets Joey, she realizes that it's not what she wants. And, you know, that's this whole funny thing where she has this conversation with her, you know, frenemy or whatever, chastity. Um, and that conversation always makes me laugh because chastity kind of acts like she's trying to stick it to Bianca. 
by being like, oh, you know, you thought you were the only sophomore who got invited to this or whatever. When really chastity is just like the second place consolation prize, you know, that Joey asked out because he couldn't get Bianca. And it's just like, am I supposed to be like bothered by that? You know, (laughs) is Bianca supposed to feel like, oh, you know, I feel so terrible. No, she doesn't want to go out with this guy. He sucks. He's a turkey. He's an idiot. She's known that he's an idiot since they were at that party. And he's like showing the difference between like underwear modeling and whatever else. And she's just bored to tears because this guy's so unbelievably conceited and self-absorbed. And she doesn't like him. She thinks he sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I like about this, that these people are revealed to be who they are. I mean, not that that really, I I feel like Joey hid it that much, but at least for, for my money, when I watch the film, people aren't on him for being the dick that he is. You know, they kind of accept it. And, and then at the end of the story, it's like, this guy is fully unacceptable you know it's just like this guy is not okay you know it, it gives you like a uh, a james spader pretty in pink vibe you know but updated you know yeah. for the 90s and not as actually cool like <laughs> i mean Steph and pretty in pink is the worst but you kind of get it because he is kind of cool yeah like even though he's horrendous yeah yeah no i understand exactly he's still what you're like really cool joey is just like he wishes that he could aspire <laughs> to that level and he thinks of himself that way like he clearly thinks that he's super awesome and like oh got the socks thing coming out i got a hemorrhoid commercial like you are an awful person dude like nobody <laughs> is impressed one of the things that is really in the script quite a bit that just rubs me the wrong way is how much shit talking everyone does with cat you know like the father is like after the accident well pms isn't covered you know and then when she's in class it's just like yeah joey's like yeah she's gotta take her might all and like the number of times she is called a bitch in this i mean it's just like wow Well, I mean, it is supposed to make you uncomfortable, I think, because it is to show you that a lot of the vitriol that is directed at Kat is very female specific. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not that it's not okay for someone to act like her. It's that it's not okay for a girl to act like her. Well, and and then we have Hemingway, right, that comes up right in the beginning. Hemingway was a fucking pig. Yeah. He was a fucking pig. And he acted like a complete asshole. You know, I mean, you have, you know, in the stories, this racist shit that he says, you know, it's just like, okay, and that guy is held up. But, you know, you have this person, and because it's a woman, it's not okay. Um, It's just something that, that really stuck out to me when I watched it this time more than ever. Like, wow, this is a lot of abuse. And it's never addressed. No, It's just like it's fine. And it's very gender specific. Like, again, if a guy acted like she acts, 
what happens. You kind of have an example of that. It's it's not that Patrick acts exactly like Cat, okay? But Patrick is a person who people are afraid of, right? But for people to be afraid of a guy, he's kind of cool and dangerous, you know, in a cool way. But for a girl to be somebody that people are afraid of, she's a bitch who needs to take her mind all. And again, especially in the 90s, but even, you know, pretty much my entire lifetime, it's always one of the first things that people go to when a woman is in a bad mood is to make this joke that she's on her period. It's just super acceptable in society to say that about a woman that like, oh, well, she's just on her period. Oh, oh, PMS is a real tough thing. And think that you're a real card because you're making this great joke. But first of all, (laughs) PMS sucks. Okay. And if you haven't had to live with like terrible cramps and all these things that happen to do with having periods, it is very difficult. And living through that every month for the great majority of your life eats crap. Um, And, you know, people who don't have to deal with that don't understand how hard it is. And so people making light of it sucks. A character that we have not discussed yet is Miss Perky, Allison Janney. Who's great and everything. Yes. Always since the beginning of time. (laughs) I heard I heard that she actually did some performances in the womb that, that were very good. They didn't want to let her out because they're like, oh, my God, she's so good. You know, yeah, she's fantastic. And as this off the wall guidance counselor that just is obsessed with writing her romance novels, it, it's wonderful. You know, she gives horrible advice. Terrible. You know, she's just fully inappropriate. And I actually saw some of the deleted scenes where we actually, you know, would would go even further. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really something. It's really funny, too, because the writer said, you know, when we look at this movie now, this, this is like an R-rated movie now. Yeah, they get away with some things in this that I was like, wow, and I actually had to think about. But when I saw them originally in the 90s, I didn't have to think about it. Like, the whole thing with, I hope I'm not driving us off the road here, but the whole thing with the David Leisure gem teacher, detention teacher character. Right. Where Kat goes in to get, to kind of spring Patrick from detention, and she ends up flashing the teacher. I, at this point in time, I'm like, ooh, that is really problematic, but back at the time when I first saw this, I didn't really think twice about it. And I do think that it is in the script as a way for us to show how different Kat has become because of her relationship with Patrick. I do think that there is like a reason for that scene to exist because it, you know, this is not the same person that we have been dealing with the whole time. She's getting a lot more playful. She's getting a lot more, um, unself-conscious about herself and being more confident in herself in a different way than she has been in the past. And, you know, uh, she is supposedly, I'm assuming, of age here. She's supposed to be graduating, so she, sh- she must be 18. So she's legally an adult, so there's no problem with that part. But that scene is kind of just like, what? Like, we would never see that in a movie at this point, ever. No. I mean, and it's just like, 
<laughs> she flashes him, okay? And then as she walks away, the entire detention room applauds, okay? And then, you know, it shows you that she's on a date with Heath Ledger and they're in these paddle boats. And he's like, how did you get me out of detention? And she's like, I dazzled him with my wits. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, holy shit. Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, when you're you're closer to being a teenager and you see this, it just doesn't register at all the same way as, you know, when you're older. That that David Leisure character is just completely insane. You know, he's got all these physical comedy bits, you know, like when he gets shot in the ass by Bianca with the arrow. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like... In the background. Yeah. It's kind of just... The action is occurring in the background. Well, that was one of the the things that they said the director, Gil Younger, added. The writer said that he added all of these physical comedy bits mm. in the background. Like, you know, when we have Crumb Holtz in the bike and he goes over the hill, that was him. You know, he added, you know, some different things to the script. Because the writer said when they wrote it, it was more female-centric. But when the director started working with it, he added in some of these physical bits, which kind of evened it out. So it, it spoke to everyone. Yeah. Well, another thing with the David Leisure character is, like, <laughs> in the detention, he's, like, confiscated this marijuana. Oh, yeah. And then he's, like, also grabs this other kid's bag of Cheetos, like, just to <laughs> telegraph that... He's going to use the marijuana later, and I think that's hilarious. David Leisure is ridiculous anyway. Like, was not was he the Azuzu guy? He was Joe Azuzu, yes. Yeah, okay. And then also he was in Empty Nest. Yes. Um, I believe, which was uh, kind of a spinoff of the Golden Girls, which was a fun show. And uh, he played kind of a, a little bit of a slimy kind of guy in Empty Nest. Also, yep. like slimy but likable, which was like an uh, a stock character of like the eighties into the early nineties, like a Dan Fielding, exactly. Yeah, who I was yeah. gonna say, yeah, like from Night Court, like the guy's kind of sleazebag, but he's also somehow interesting and charming in a way that makes you want to stick around and see what's going on with them. Um, but yeah, so I think he was good casting here. I wonder. Because Gil Younger, I believe, directed an episode or maybe even a couple of the Golden Girls. I wonder if he met David Leisure through that experience. I don't know that, but I, I do know that he directed at least one episode of the Golden Girls. That's fun. Yeah. Golden Girls. I should have worn my Golden Girls t-shirt. <laughs> but I wore my Beavis and Butthead t-shirt instead. It felt like I had to go 90s somehow. It's like we're at Bogey Lowenstein's party. <laughs> Right here in our closet. What a name, Bogey Lowenstein. Oh, my God. Well, so, all right. So, the the Bogey Lowenstein party. I'm going to take a quick second to talk about this. This actually reminds me of the one time in my life that I threw a party in college at my mother's house. <laughs> I don't know the story, so. Oh, really? Okay. All right. So, this, this gets about as nice. I'm 90s. excited for it. Oh, all right. So, you got... <laughs> I hope I pull through for you. So here we go. So it's the 90s. My mother went to vacation in Hawaii. Okay. And I went to an Oasis concert. Oh my God. Yes, yes. The 90s is wafting off of the story. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, after we saw Oasis at the Worcester Centrum, and which later was rumored to be their last show because, you know, the brothers were always breaking up. It certainly wasn't, but we thought it was cool. It was like, we saw the last show. So it, it was a, you know, great show. 
and we went to, you know, my mother's house and, you know, there weren't that many of us, but we decided to have, you know, a party. And I found like some ancient booze in the garage and it wasn't really good stuff, but we really charged up and people had brought like beers and things like some glass bottles. And this party really, really escalated quickly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. Okay. Where to begin? So um, I saw someone going into one of the guest bathrooms and they were so drunk you know, that they went to catch themselves with, with the towel bar and they just <laughs> ripped the towel bar just right out of the wall. Um, it, you know, that was incredible. I also got to witness um, a person who tried to go back into the house from the porch. And this was kind of like a, a double door, you know, how the guys have the fight in the in the film Mm -hmm. you know and they actually like break through those double doors okay it wasn't exactly like that but it was close enough what happened was one of the doors was open only one of these double doors opened on the porch yeah i remember that it's weird it's goofy and so you could actually pull a screen you know which i had done you know to keep the bugs out (laughs) and this drunk person just like housed out into the screen and they were so out of it then what the hell was going on and they literally ripped the screen off the door and i was like jesus christ oh my god <laughs> but we didn't stop there we decided to play baseball out in the backyard okay okay at least you went outside. I thought we were saying you're doing the living room or something. <laughs> well, this is horrendous. So we didn't have anything for bases, but I don't remember who came up with this idea. But what we decided is that we would actually just put beer bottles where the bases should be. And so when you went on base, you know, you just stomp on the glass. And, you know, when we heard that shattered glass, we would know that you were on base. Oh my God, we are so lucky the neighbors did not call the police on us. So, I mean, the the party really, you know, was happening. And I remember, you know, we all went to sleep. Christ only knows what happened in any of those rooms, you know, when I was asleep. But the next morning I got up really early and I was working with my friend Nick to to, to try to put back together the house and it, it 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 wasn't easy i had to tell my mother about the party she was <laughs> totally fucking bullshit but um you know hey it was a once in a lifetime oh, thing it's high school everybody no college does... oh it was college well you probably were a little too old so you should have known better it no. was my one big party and you know so we moved on you know from there so i, I felt bad and uh you know, try to make everything right with the door and the towel bar. And I, I can't tell you how long it took to pick up all the glass oh my God. out of, you know, the lawn. But at least nobody like cut their arm off. Oh I Christ. mean, I mean, you're so lucky. I mean, looking back, I mean, it was wild. But I, I, I'll always remember, you know, the towel bar and just the person ripping the screen door off. It was this person that was usually pretty calm, too, which was what made it so good. But when they just walked into the screen, they were so fucking mad. <laughs> Um, that's so. really funny like, <laughs> that's their drunk persona it's just angry at screens <laughs> screen killer so yeah bogey lowenstein's party you know again i you know i i was geeky guy i still am a geeky guy <laughs> and and that was like my big you know blowout mm-hmm. so 
the great thing about this film is I never would compare myself to Heath Ledger in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> you know, uh, I would say the closest thing that we've got, you know, is he was born April 4th, 1979. I was born April 3rd, 1977. You know, that, that's kind of like the, the closest uh, we so have. So you're both like 70s born Aries. Right? Yeah. We're hardcore. We're Rams, bro. <laughs> and when Fire he, signs. Right? Right. You know, there's something there. There's something there, right? So when they're at Club Skunk, and he says to Kat, I've never seen you look so sexy, like really loud. <laughs> you know, because, you know, when you're in a concert, you're at a club, I remember this, you have to talk really loud. And when he says, I've never seen you look so sexy, everyone was quiet for that split second. <laughs> and they just laughed at him like he was the biggest asshole on planet Earth. And and that is the closest I've ever felt to being <laughs> Heath Ledger in my life. Well, I see that you have a little bit of a Heath Ledger quality with this Patrick Verona character. Um, because, but I mean, we, again, uh, we know you're way more like the David Crumholtz Michael character. I'm a grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like Benjamin Button. The older I get, the more I try to de-age. I mean, I still look old, but I feel like personality wise, I just, I just get younger, you know, like, you know, you're going to come just home started and like, well, I mean, I'm sucking saying... on my thumb one day. You're going to, what the hell's going on? You know? Well, though, I remember watching video when you were like, I don't know if you were like, student council president or if it was some kind of mock un or something that you were doing mm -hmm. or you were just interviewing on television like your oh, local yeah. access and talking about being a lawyer or something and you just were like so old yeah. <laughs> not like you know in a bad way but like you were so mature like i know exactly what i want this is you know what my plan is and it was just really great Thanks. Yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, the crazy things that happen when you're younger. It, I don't know. It's just it's all so exciting when you look back. You're like, oh my god! You're like, I, I totally, totally forgot about <laughs> I that. I peaked in high school. That's how I feel <laughs> every day. Oh no, my god. I peaked in college. So, <laughs> but you know, I wouldn't say that's true either. But yeah, it feels like it sometimes. But yeah, so the, actually, right around the time this movie came out was like the top. That's when I was on the top. <laughs> You're still on the top. All buddy. downhill. Still from on there. the top. So the part I really like with Larry Miller, I just want to throw this in, you know, before we wrap up, because it's just such a great exchange. And this is when they're getting ready to go to Bogey Lowenstein's party. And <laughs> you know, Larry Miller's like, Where are you going? An orgy? And they're like, It's just a party. And he goes, And hell is just a sauna. <laughs> Is this where he makes her put on the belly? Yes. <laughs> oh, it's he so good. He makes her wear the pregnant belly and walk around the room so she knows what it's like. So funny. It's brilliant. I don't know. I, I love this movie. Oh, totally random. A couple times, David Crumholtz reminded me of, like, Martin Scorsese. That's really funny. Yeah. Like, again, because he has that, that maturity to him, and he has this older look that he fully embraces. Oh, yeah. He leans into that hard. Yeah. It's He does it in Slums of Beverly Hills, too. Like, it's just really funny. He's great. So one thing that I think we have to talk about before we can wrap up is one of the most memorable scenes um, is around music. There's a lot of music scenes in this that are memorable. Mm -hmm. um, one of them, though, that we haven't discussed yet is the Can't Take My Eyes Off You scene 
where, you know, Heath Ledger's character, Patrick, is trying to impress Kat so that she'll go out with them. And he bribes the marching band to play the song and he sings and kind of, you know, dances around <laughs> like the bleachers <laughs> and then is running away from the security guys while he's singing the song. And it's like one of these big, you know, gesture type moments where, you know, he's willing to like put himself out there to show that he really likes her. Mm -hmm. um, and it's another situation where he's like got this money, you know, to be doing this, but he's using the money for Kat. So even before the end, when he buys her the guitar, we have this scene where he's willing to go through a little bit of self-humiliation and pay money um, to get her to pay attention to him and and like him. Well, him paying off the band leader. I mean, that shot is choice <laughs> because that band leader knows what's up. It's like, I don't know, it, it's like a super funny, like drug deal almost <laughs> type of transaction. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's kind of up there for me, like... <laughs> Within Goodfellas, when the cops finally bust Leota, you know, and he like he puts his finger into the powder and he he puts it to his tongue and he smiles like it's that level, you know, of excitement. And originally, I, I think that they were maybe were thinking about more of like a pop song or something mm -hmm. for him. And the director was like, you know, let's go with, with the ballad, you know, something more honest and everyone was really excited you know with that and Heath Ledger is actually singing the song and he said that they gave him all this choreography to do and that he you know just kind of made it really sloppy <laughs> <laughs> and made it his own and it is hilarious just him running around and getting dragged off it, it has like that older feel almost like a, a Charlie Chaplin or yeah. a Buster Keaton vibe to it which is just which is just great. And I mean, you know, the excitement, the smile I get every single time, you know, when the band kicks in. Oh, it's great. It's great. And it just makes this film, again, just so special. Yeah, it's very unique, I think. And that's like been parodied and stuff after it just because it is so memorable and such a big moment in the movie and I think it was in the trailer as well like I really remember that yeah um you know being a, a big feature of this movie it's huge it was huge and it it makes a lot of sense with with the relationship with Kat and Patrick also because they relate to each other around music a lot mm -hmm. you know music is like a huge important thing to Kat you know, we've talked about it already. You know, they they have the scene where he goes to hang out with her at Club Skunk, I think. Yeah. Is the name of it, where the Letters to Cleo band is playing. And then they come back at the end and are on the roof of the building, which is awesome. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but she's also got posters at the Gits, which is this awesome like early 90s punk band from Seattle. She's actually got two gifts posters. So at the time when I first saw this, I didn't know who that, who that was. Now I'm like, whoa, Kat's 
like street cred is off the chain. Well, the writers actually <laughs> talked about that. It was so funny. You know, McCullough was like, you know, Kirsten, you know, she spent all this time thinking about what were the coolest bands at the time, <laughs> you know, to put up, you know, as posters in her room. And I was like, I love these people. You know, the attention to detail. They wanted these characters to have everything. Now, originally, the, the title, you know, how that came about is, uh, is pretty interesting. So in preparation to, to work on the script... Okay, McCullough went through her old high school diaries and found a list that she wrote entitled Things I Hate About Anthony. Uh, that was her boyfriend at the time. And as soon as Smith heard the title, she said, Ten Things I Hate About You. That's the title. And it is a great title. Like, it's, it's perfect. And it comes back in the sonnet um, where... She actually writes, like, I think around 10 things where she's talking about, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, you know, and it's, it's just really good. Like, again, like they're tapping into this real teen angst feel that pretty much everybody goes through as a teenager. Oh, yeah. And, and again, the writers talked about, it. I do think it is exactly 10 things. Because McCullough was like, you know, Kirsten, you know, she's a poet. You know, she has a book of poetry that was published that they paid her for. <laughs> so she wrote like nine of the ten things. She's like, I wrote like one of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, again, I, I love I love these women. Oh, my God. They're so good. They're great. You they're know, great. So it, it's just like being able to to have that. And also, again, you know, talking about women, we have, you know, Letters to Cleo, which we talked about at Club Skunk. Mm -hmm. And at the prom, we have Save Ferris. And they also have the lead singer. Kay Hanley. Right. Of Letters to Cleo comes into the prom. Mm -hmm. And Patrick says that, like, he bribed her to come or whatever. He, he knows people or whatever. Yeah, he, like, called in a favor or something. Yeah. Like, you know, again, it's kind of like the, the line, the new anti-inflammatories and face-off <laughs> to explain how they were able to change their faces and, well, you know, he the, knows. it just took. I mean, we see earlier that he does know, like, the bartender, I think, at Club Skunk or whatever. Um, he, he's like, I don't know, we, he, we continue to like see these underground connections. Yeah, you know? he's an underworld boss. <laughs> Patrick is so badass and stuff. He is the Joker, dude. <laughs> this is the it's origin the true story. true origin story. Yeah. Um, but I love it how, you know, Letters to Cleo comes back at the end. They're doing, I want you to want me a cover. Mm -hmm. But they're on top of this roof of the school, which is like. Kind of epic ending for this movie to have. <laughs> like, they didn't need to go this hard, but they did it anyway, and we love them for it. You know, we have, like, the reconciliation where, you know, Patrick's bought her the guitar, and then her favorite band is, like, playing a song on the roof of her school, you know? Yeah. Nobody knows those. They're just up there jamming it out. <laughs> but, like, they paid for this helicopter shot for this. And it's one of my favorite stories that, like, the the band is up there and they were, like, trying to sing and, and you know, they were terrified of, of what was going on because they're in, like, a very small space on top of this building and this helicopter is flying around and they don't know where it's going to go or when it's going to go and they're trying to, like, make it work, like, with the song to stay, you know, where they're supposed to be in it. 
and then the, at the end of it, the helicopter just is like dive bombs right at them, <laughs> and they're just like terrified that they're gonna f up the shot because it cost so much money but they didn't and it was awesome but i have to say like i don't know if i could have been that cool with like a helicopter just flying straight at me oh yeah it was like they said that that was the thought just stay in it stay in it they're like they told them that the helicopter was going to come close but i'm with you i mean that's massive you know what i mean i mean and it was flying in a circle which is like okay cool you know that's where it is and then like it just is like bazoom like it's coming right at you yeah i would have been like are we dead? Like, you know, <laughs> but they couldn't stop because they knew that if they stopped, it would mess up the shot. So they just stayed strong. And uh, all credit to them for that because it's a really cool ending to the it's movie. Fantastic. Yeah, it, it, it's never just, seen that. No, it, it's just like the helicopter goes over to them. You know, we see the water and then we go to the credits and then we go right into, you know, <laughs> these bloopers, which are which are great. I mean, the music in this, you know, the two most memorable songs for me are covers. You know, they have Cruel to be Kind. It's an awesome cover. Right? Yeah. Of Nick Lowe. It's a 1979 song. Nick Lowe is a UK singer-songwriter. And then we have I Want You to Want Me, which is from Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. You know, again, from the 70s. So it's like, we have these covers, but they have this new energy that comes into them. Yeah. I mean, I would venture to say that, you know, my opinion only... I, I kind of like Letters to Cleo, Cruel to be Kind, better, I think, than the original. They're very similar. Sure, sure. But I really like it in this movie, too. So it's like, not only do I really like the cover and think it's a great cover, but it's also perfect for this movie because of the words, you know, and, and what the song is saying and, you know, it's all, it, this movie is all about that. It's about having a balance of you know, kindness and cruelty, Yeah. you know, and, and trying to balance those two things that coexist in everyone. So I think it's a good choice. Like so many good choices. That's what makes a great movie. It's all about the text. And the last thing that I'll say about this is I actually saw Letters to Cleo play in the basement of WPI in the 90s. It was wow. like the early 90s. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like... You know, there was there was any stage. They were just on the floor. I was sitting on the stairs and just like watching them. It was the craziest, craziest thing. So when I watch this movie, I have that memory of like I saw them in a basement in Worcester, (laughs) you know, when I was in high school, just sitting on the stairs. So, yeah, I, I love this movie. I am so glad, so glad we had an opportunity to talk about this one. I'm really enjoying Love Month, yes. you know? Yeah, it's fun to talk about romances, and these are a little different. Like, we've done rom-coms in the past, but um, I think that, you know, where there's a comedic element here, it is more a romance movie than a comedy. Um, but they do so much with what they have, and I just, I'm impressed with that. I love it. It's like that capturing lightning in a bottle thing again. Um, next week we'll be back with another actually Shakespeare adaptation uh, <laughs> romance movie which is a little bit off kilter it is Warm Bodies uh, which is a Romeo and Juliet plus zombies kind of a situation <laughs> um, but it's a, a more recent film that we both really enjoy um, with some great acting and some great opportunity to discuss 
you know, romance and zombies, which is a good combo. So hopefully you'll join us for that next week. Until then, as always, stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody.